Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Hallelujah! Amen. Thank you so much for leading worship today and sharing in that. We have a guest uh, speaker this morning, and uh, this week, as I mentioned, is our Northwest Grace Youth Camp, and uh, Pat McGillicuddy is here to speak at the high school camp this week, so he'll be here all week speaking at camp, and Pat is the Vernon Schutz Chair of Pastoral Ministries at Grace Bible, Grace Christian University, Grace Christian University. Uh, Pat has been on staff there full-time for the past six years, and for those of you, of course, remember, Pastor Vernon Schutz was my predecessor here at Brian. Uh, for 13 years, and uh, they established this chair of pastoral ministry because that's very important to our fellowship. Pat is currently working on his Ph.D., working on finishing that up. And uh, he was served for nine years, I believe, over at Port Orchard, Grace Bible Church. And then he was uh, six years at uh, Grace um, Bible Fellowship in Jenison, Michigan. And now, yeah, woohoo! and now at uh, the college. So come on up, uh, university. Come on up, uh, Pat. And Pat's going to share our message today. And uh, he also married my daughter, if that's what's anything. Yeah. <laughs> that's important, right? So you better do a good job. I wasn't going to say that. In case you do a bad job, I don't want to tell anybody that. But, you know. Anyway, Pat's been with us before. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for Pat and his love for your word and love for you and also love for training people, young people in ministry to serve our churches. Bless him now as he opens your word, and may our hearts be attentive to it. In Christ our Savior's name, all God's people say together, Amen. Amen. Well, greetings from uh, Grand Rapids. And uh, first, greetings from uh, Grand Rapids and from Grace Bible Fellowship. I, just so many uh, people out there, I'm sure you're, uh, you know well, Caleb and Mary Beefus always say hi whenever I come out. And then, of course, my wife, I told her that I would say hi to everybody who remembers Sarah, uh, Shamaria. And I remember when I was first used to be introduced as Sarah's husband. Now it's starting to be the other way around. She's Pat's wife now, so that's kind of nice. And obviously from Grace Christian University, I figured I'd be the one that says Grace Bible College. I still say that sometimes. Uh, but just greetings from Grace Christian University. We're getting ready to start our new semester. Students start coming next uh, week for uh, the next full week for uh, sports and some of the early term classes. Uh, looks like going to be a, a wonderful semester. Uh, the attendance looks really well. This year, if you could be praying for Grace Christian University, we're going through our annual uh, uh, assessment uh, from the from the government, basically, and so be praying. Our our staff and administration is working really hard on that, and it's crucial. So be praying for that throughout the year, and then I would ask for prayer as the uh, Vern Schutz chair, uh, as we look for pastors uh, for the Grace Gospel Fellowship. We have a lot of pastors in the program, but not a lot of pastors in the GGF portion of the program. They're they're students who come to Grace because they they've heard good things about Grace. Um, and they want to be trained in ministry, but they're not necessarily GGF students. And uh, so we, I encourage uh, all of our churches to be praying and looking for candidates for pastors and uh, for those positions, because um, that's just, it's needed. It's, it's needed, especially right now in the GGF. So be praying for you, uh, be praying for that as well. Uh, I'm excited to bring God's word today and this week. I love speaking to high schoolers. That's kind of where I started in uh, ministry, obviously, in Port Orchard. Uh, it's just, I don't know if I feel like I relate to high schoolers and college-age students a little bit better. 
Um, I, I don't know if that's what it is or not, but I just enjoy speaking and talking and getting to know the students. I feel like a lot of times my best ministry is not in the classroom. I'm speaking at Grace Christian University here, but it's in between the classes and in my office, in the halls, at the lunchroom and that type of thing, building relationships. And so I'm excited to do that at camp this week as well, getting to know some of your students and the other GGF churches. One thing I hear a lot, and I'll just move into our sermon when I think about this, is the concept of, and maybe you've thought of this as well, um, of using God, and I'm going to use this term as our good luck charm. Maybe you've thought of, uh, or you've done this yourself, I'll use my own personal experience, going to a public high school uh, so many years ago, 20 plus, I'll just say that, I like that answer, 20 plus years ago. And uh, in a public high school before the basketball game, and the coach would pray. A, a very non-godly like prayer. I mean, Jesus would not be mentioned by my coach unless he was swearing, and that's coming up later. But he would pray, Lord, help us win this game, or God, help us win this game. Help us be better than the other team. And I remember that, and I remember growing up watching a movie, maybe some of you remember the movie Hoosiers. And at the end of the movie, when they were playing the big, great team in Indianapolis... They brought in the, the pastors who came in and they prayed and it was a long prayer. And it was basically a sermon where they used David and Goliath and they said, like David striking down Goliath, may we destroy this other team. And you wonder, and it's kind of funny and you think about that. I wonder what was happening in the other locker room. Did they have a pastor in there as well? Were they praying? Was this a battle of like who could pray better? Or how long the prayer was. I remember in Hoosiers, there's one scene where the kind of the religious guy on the team, he prays, he keeps praying. He's down on his knee and he just keeps praying. Is that what it is? Is it who, who prays better that causes them to win a game? It's scary to think about what the, the implications of that are and how deep they are. Because we, that's just a sports illustration, a silly thing. It doesn't really matter who wins the game. But there, there's a historical illustration that you might have heard of. Uh, the famous reformer Martin Luther, before he was a, a priest and, and the reformer that he became, he was training to be a lawyer. And in his own writings, he says that he was on a on a, uh, a path one night or one day and there was a lightning storm. And he prayed that, God, if you help me survive this lightning storm, I will serve you. I will become a, a monk. And he did. And he did become a monk, and he did become the great reformer Martin Luther. He made this deal with God. And I wonder if sometimes we find ourselves in uh, sticky situations making deals with God. God, if you get me out of this, I will serve you better, or I will serve you more, or I'll give you my life. And that's kind of what Martin Luther did. What are the implications of that? Is that okay? Should we all be making those kind of deals with God? Well, I want to start, this isn't the main passage we're going to look at today, but I want to start in the book of Judges. When I teach, um, when I teach the Bible, I really, one of my favorite things to do is to show the students stories in the Bible that they have not heard of. Now, I'm not saying that this is possible at this church. But there is a very, uh, Judges chapter 11, there's a, a, a kind of an uncommon judge that we find in Judges 11. You guys might have, um, heard of, you know, Gideon and Samson and all the judges that we're pretty familiar with, Deborah. Ehud, the left-handed judge. But most people don't know about Jephthah, who's kind of an unruly judge, kind of a judge that people don't like to talk about. I dare say pastors don't like to preach about it because what do you say? How do you preach about Jephthah? Well, when you hear this little story, this little vow that Jephthah makes, 
You'll see why. In, in Judges chapter 11, uh, verse 30 and 31, it says, Jephthah made a vow. I'm in 11, Judges 11, verse 30 and 31. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when, it, when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So Jephthah does the same thing that Martin Luther did, right? He said, if I win this battle, if you give them into my hand, the Ammonites are in the book of Judges, you know, the, uh, the, the, the people around Israel are always causing problems. The Ammonites are one of them and they're causing problems. He says, deliver them into my hands and I will sacrifice a burnt offering to you as to whatever comes out my, the door. And I, I've had this debate with people, you know, what was he thinking was going to come out his door? It's animals, and we know from archaeology and stuff, very often the animals might have lived there on the first floor, and that might have been very common. That's what he was hoping or thinking would come out the door. But when he wins the victory, which God seemingly gives him victory, what comes out the door? Those of you who know, know that it's his daughter that comes out the door. And as the story goes, it says that Jephthah did as he vowed to the Lord. Jephthah, we know, if you read that story, there is no way you could read that story and say that Jephthah is being good. He is doing what's right in God's eyes. This is something that's atrocious. It is something that throughout hundreds of years of theology, people have tried to show that Jephthah didn't sacrifice his daughter because it's so terrible. And I don't know if you can do that. It's fine if you want to try to say he didn't do it. But we know it's terrible what he did. And so we know this kind of relationship with God is not what God wants. He doesn't want this. You give me something and I'll give you something back. That's how we treat our Christmas cards. Do you know what I'm saying? We have a, we used to have a Christmas card list. And if anybody sent us a Christmas card that wasn't on our list, we had to add them to our Christmas card list. If anybody didn't send us a Christmas card one year, they get checked off the Christmas card list. I mean, that's kind of how we treat God. God, you do something good for me. I'll do something back good for you. And that's not the kind of relationship that God wants with us. What kind of relationship do you have with God? I really teach and, and preach and believe heavily in our relationship with God. That's what he wants. And a relationship is not once a week for one hour, right? We can all agree with that. That is not what God wants. If this is all you are giving God, then you are basically doing that, okay, one day a week, one, not even a whole day, just one hour a day, and that's what I'm giving. And that's not what God wants. Very often, the only other time people turn to God is when they are in great dire need or when something really good has happened. You know, when they hit the home run or the walk-off hit, and what do they do? They point up to God. Do they do that when they strike out? Have you ever seen somebody strike up and go, thank you, God? Thanks for being with me today. At least I didn't, like, die, right? I mean... I only struck out. That's, there could be worse things, right? What do they do when they get up to get their... Yeah, I don't watch these things anymore, but I remember in the old days, the Academy and the Emmy Awards, what did they always say when they get up? They used to thank God. I thank God. Do they thank God when they don't? Do we think of God in all the times? The good, the bad, the between? How do we treat God? Is He like the genie in the bottle that we go to when we want something? Or is he the relationship that we have built over years and years of our life? 
strengthening so that we can have this bond with God. And it's not just a once in the, a, a one hour a week type of thing, but in all the time, all the time. I, I just turn to and think of the verse in my head, pray without ceasing. That verse always was kind of, you know, a little mysterious to me. How can I pray without ceasing when I was a kid? Because what did praying mean? Bowing your head, closing your eyes. And I thought, I hope my dad, when he's driving me to school today, doesn't pray without ceasing. But this is what it's talking about. It's talking about a relationship with God that's 24 hours a day, all the time, everywhere, with everything that we do. So this morning I want to talk about uh, the story of the Ark of the Covenant. And again, like I said, I like to turn to kind of a little bit more rare stories that you don't hear. If you want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter uh, 4 to start. Uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And I want to think about the way Israel and others treated the Ark of the Covenant... And I want to compare that to how we treat God. And certainly there's a, a lot of um, specific like legal things that we don't have to worry about, right? Like God's present is, presence isn't in some place like it was back then, right? Uh, some people, this is a good debate even when we talk about it today to think about, is like how do we treat church compared to how they treated the temple, right? Are we allowed to come up to church or who's allowed to come up front Who's allowed to come into the sanctuary? I mean, it's totally different than it was in the law, but how reverent do we treat church? And that's the kind of thing I want to talk about and think about. How do they treat the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God? You've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? The, the, the box that they carried. How did they treat it? And how did they treat it like this good luck charm? So let's turn to First uh, Samuel chapter 4. Uh, and we'll start in verses 1 to 3. I want to encourage you too. I'm not going to read this whole passage. It's like three chapters long. So tonight or later today, I encourage you, read this whole story so you can see the, the whole, uh, the, the breadth of everything that's going on. First Samuel chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And Samuel's words came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battle. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So you see, Israel was facing, we, we know they were facing the Philistines quite a bit from the David and Goliath story and things like that. And here they're facing the Philistines again. And they're in battle with them and they're losing. And I want you to keep an eye on the number because I think the number is important here. It says that 4,000 people fell that day. Okay, just remember that, kind of put it in the back of your head because we're going to see that number change in, in how many people fall when these things happen. And the Israelites are, are, you know, again, they, they kind of do this all the time. God, why aren't you with us? Why are we losing these battles? And their solution is, let's get the Ark of the Covenant. Remember I said, this is like the presence of God. Let's get the Ark of the Covenant and let's bring it to the battle with us. Now, the story of the Ark of the Covenant, they know these stories. The story of when, it, it, when they put the Ark of the Covenant into the river and the river parts It leads them in battle against Jericho. They know these stories. I believe they do at least. And so they're thinking, if we bring the ark with us, God will do these amazing things once again. And we'll win these battles. And so they do this. And they have these two guys named Phineas and Hophni. And I want to do just a quick kind of comparison. 
Notice in the very first verse, it starts with a guy named Samuel. Do you see that in verse 1? Samuel's not mentioned the rest of the story. And I think there's a reason for that. Because I think Samuel was treating God correctly and had a good relationship with him. And this is all about how people treated God poorly and had bad relationships. And so instead of Samuel now, we switch over to these two guys named Phineas and Hophni. And they're, they're bad guys. They're bad. And they use God to do evil things. And here, they are using God once again to try to get their way, to get their victory in this battle. So scan down to verse 10. 1 Samuel 4, verse 10. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated. Every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of the God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Did it get better for them when they brought the ark of the covenant in? It didn't just get worse, it got significantly worse. Everything bad happened. More people died, their priests died, and the Ark of the Covenant was captured that day. Later in the story, if you, again, if you read the whole thing, you'll see that their high priest, Eli, even died that day as well when he heard the news of the Ark being captured. And so this, all this disaster happened when all they thought was, if we bring the Ark as our good luck charm then we will certainly rout the Philistines. And instead, God said, no, 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 you don't use me like that. That's not what I am. I am more than just your good luck charm. What did these guys have wrong? I think there's an important thing here. We can do what we might think as right things, right? Having the Ark of the Covenant might be considered a right thing. But if we don't have the heart correctly, one of the songs you guys sang, Change My Heart, O God, if we don't have the heart correctly, and it doesn't do anything, right? It's the Philistines, uh, sorry, not the Philistines, uh, the Pharisees. The Pharisees had the outward appearance correct, but the in- inward was terrible. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They had everything on the outside right, pretty, beautiful, Christian, looked like it was supposed to be, right? We come to church and everybody might be dressed in their finest and they might have their biggest Bible they can have. And they walk in and they look like a really strong Christian. But what's in their heart? What is their purpose for that? Why are they there that day? What are they doing? And the Pharisees were doing, trying to look good. And here, the Israelites were trying to use God as their weapon, as their their tool of victory over the Philistines. I want to encourage you because I think this is something really important. And again, I go back to my idea about relationship with God. It is a heart relationship with God. It is not an outward relationship. You know, you can do nice things, right? Think about the relationship with your spouse or your significant other, you know, somebody that you really are close to. And, and you might have, I've been caught doing this myself, like, you know, buying the, the gift, like just buying the flowers and saying, oh, here, I forgot, you know, I forgot it was Valentine's Day, so I bought you some flowers or something like that. And it's like, yeah, that's great. That outward appearance, that thing is nice. But what I really want is your heart. I really want the relationship, right? You can say I love you, but do you do the things that mean that you love them? And that's the relationship we're talking about with God. I want you to mark down, I don't know if I have enough time to look at these passages, but I want you to mark down Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11 to 17, and Micah 6, 6 through 8. And go back and look at those sometime. And basically what those passages are saying is God says to the Israelites, 
I am sick and tired of your sacrifices. I am sick of your feast days. You're doing all the outward appearance, but your heart is not right. I want your heart, not the outward appearance. And the other passage that you can think about, we don't need to write this down, but if you think about it, it's 1 Samuel 16, 7, one of my favorite Old Testament verses, that man looks at the outward appearance and God looks at the heart, right? The brother that they thought was right was the tallest, oldest, strongest, most military experience, and God said, that's not the one I want. I want the one with the heart. That's what I want. And so my challenge for us, for you and me, is to say, let's not be the Sunday Christian. If you know what that means when I talk about it, it means the person who does come on to church just on Sunday or just one day a week and says, that's it. That's my relationship with God. Could you imagine, again, think of your spouse or your significant other. Could you imagine if you only saw them one hour a week, once a week, and that was it? Maybe you called them when you needed something during the week, right? How would that go? Hon, yeah, I, I need you to pick up something for me. That's all I need today. Don't, I don't need anything else. That would not be a relationship. I remember when I was dating Sarah, if we are going to go back to that far, at Grace, there's a special kind of relationship you have when you're at Grace. Um, you're in different dorms, trust me, different, definitely different dorms. But other than that, you're together 24 hours a day. You eat together, you're in class together, you're in the lounge together, you go to the games together, you do everything together. You are like God wants this prayer without ceasing, you are in a relationship without ceasing. It goes on. When we would go to the dorm rooms, we would then call each other from like 50 feet away. All right, just wanted to say goodnight one more time. I mean, that sounds really sappy, but it is really sappy, but (laughs) that's the kind of relationship God wants with us. Not just this, oh, I need something. I need something. That's it. That's all I want from you is just what do I need? Be careful how we do that. And I encourage us, as we think about developing that relationship with God, that it should be an all-the-time thing. See, when one of the things I wrote down here, uh, and I'm trying to figure out how to word this exactly right, but being on God's side doesn't always equal a win the way we think a win should look, right? So I go back to the sports analogy. If I pray to God, it doesn't mean that I'm going to win the game. But being on God's side does equal a win for God, a win for my relationship with God, right? Whether I strike out, whether we lose the game, whether I win the award, whatever happens, if I'm on God's side, then I win. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, does anybody remember what they said when the king was going to kill them? We know that God can save us. Are they in there? But... If he doesn't, we want you to know that we only serve him. Something like that. Right? Isn't that amazing? Like, they didn't say, we know God can save us and he will, and if he doesn't, we quit. No. They said, we know he can save us, but he doesn't have to. He might want to take us home right now. And if he does, that's great. We still win. If we're on God's side, we win no matter whether we lose in human standard or human eyes or whatever. We win with God. And that's important. So think about that as you go around. I want to keep going in the story back to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Once the ark was captured, it got into the hands of the Philistines. And this is my, this is why this is one of my favorite stories. If you've ever read this story or if you remember it, I think it's hilarious. God is a God of humor. And he is so, I think he's so funny here. We think it's funny. The Philistines did not. 
In chapter 5, verse 2, it says, They carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Dagon is the Philistine god. Probably has to do with fish. They're seafaring people. Dog, it means fish in the Semitic languages, at least in Hebrew. And so it probably has something to do with like a fish god or something. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Just like fell over bowing down before the ark of the covenant. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. Can you imagine how scared the priests would have been? The guys who come in in the morning to like clean everything up. And they're like, our, our statue of our God is fallen on the ground. So they jump, they fix it all up. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time, his head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. God just said, this is not the way you treat me. I'm not just another one of the gods that are out there. You see, back then, a lot of the people groups were called, we, you know the word polytheism, which means many gods, but they were more called henotheists, which mean they had their own cultural or regional gods. And so for the Philistines, God, the Ark of the Covenant was just another god. He was the Israelites' god. Dagon was our god. So if we capture their god, we don't destroy it. We just bring him into our temple and we put him at the foot of our God because he's just one of the rest of them. And that was pretty common. Even the Israelites in their, in their worst days were basically henotheists. Remember when they had different idols in the, in the temple? Jeremiah tears them down at the end of the, before the destruction of the temple. They're basically henotheists. And so this is the idea, I believe, called pluralism. Now, I don't think anybody necessarily here that comes to, to Berean Seattle is a henotheist or a pluralist, but it is very rampant in the world today. Pluralism saying that there are many religions that lead to God, that they all can relieve, uh, lead to God. I went for a walk this morning and I was walking up on a certain road. I don't, I don't know if I get in trouble for saying these things, so I won't tell you where exactly and walk by this one church and in the window and I, Try not to be like too judgmental about what this meant. I was just trying to figure, I'm still trying to figure out. It said, we stand with our Muslim brothers in a church window. And I'm trying to figure out, I'm hoping it just means we want some kind of equality. You know, we, we, we don't want them to be abused or hurt or something like that. But in a church window, I can only imagine that means that they are a pluralist church that says, yeah, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, everyone's fine. And you become basically a Unitarian, a Universalist church, which says everybody gets to go to heaven. When I was a kid, I called this uh, Oprah church. I just remember on Oprah, I, just, I, I don't remember much about Oprah growing up, watching it every once in a while. But she'd have people of all faiths, and every time they would come on, she'd say, that's great. That's great. I love that you love Jesus. Isn't that great? I love that you love Islam. That's great. And the one I remember the most, Tom Cruise coming on, talking about Scientology or whatever he was. And, oh, I love that you have Scientology. That's great. Like, everything was fine. Everything was great. As long as you were faithful to it. As long as you were, were going to do it. And God said, this is not the way either. The Philistines thought this was right. Just join our collection of gods. And he said, no. Boom. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it got worse. In the Philistine camps, people got tumors. There were rat infestations. People died left and right. Finally, and they would send the, the Ark of the Covenant from city to city trying to get rid of it. And finally, they said, send it back to Israel. We don't want this thing anymore. 
I think it's funny. It is funny, but I think it's funny because they weren't willing to accept what the truth was. And that was that the ark of the Lord was more powerful than their God. They weren't really, they weren't willing to accept that. And they just said, let's get rid of this thing. Isn't that the way the world often responds to God is they just want to ignore it or push it away. They don't want to confront it and say, okay, who is God? Who is Jesus? What does it mean that he's Lord? Tell me more about that. Instead, they say, get out of here. I don't want this anymore. And so God said, this is not the way either. I am the God of the universe, not one of many. And you can look at the Shema, obviously, Deuteronomy 6, 4, but other passages as well that emphasize that that is it. That is what God is. I want to just read this one. I, I wrote this one down so I could read it. First Corinthians 8, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. That's it. That's amazing. And so there is not one of many. It's only one. So when the Ark of the Covenant gets sent back to Israel, I want you to just move a few verses over into chapter 6, verse 19. Now it's back in the rightful hands. And the question is, will Israel now treat the Ark correctly again? In 619, verse 20 and 20, uh, 619 through 21, it says this, but God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they had looked into the Ark of the Lord. The people mourned because the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the men of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, the holy God? To whom will the Ark go up from here? And I'm going to say verse 21 for just a second. And again, this is one of the big differences between now and today. Like, it was, it was wrong against the law for anyone to look into the Ark of the Covenant, except for uh, the high priest on a certain day. That was it. There was very strict rules. In the book of Numbers, they describe how the tabernacle was t- torn apart or taken down so that no one accidentally saw or touched the Ark of the Covenant. It was very sacred. And the, the people of Bashemesh, they were so excited that they just treated it like just another thing. And they ran in and they looked in it. And the Bible says that 70 people died. Do you have a footnote there? I always like to point this out. Or do you have a King James Bible? Anybody have a King James? 50,000, it says in the Hebrew Bible. Scholars today say, no, no, that can't be. There couldn't have been 50,000 people in Beth Shemesh. I don't know how you want to debate that. I don't know if you want to say it's 70 or 50,000 and maybe it's just a, you know, a, a, a misprint or something like that. But I argue that what we see, remember I told you to remember the numbers? What we see is an increase and it's going up and up and up and up. This irreverent presence or or treating of god was the worst of all of them they treated it irreverently i don't know how you think about that today and again i kind of talked about this a little bit earlier like how do we treat church or how do we treat the word of god i think the most famous one is using god's name in vain right i mean you can't watch a movie or go out into the streets and, and not hear the word god jesus christ what, probably others. You don't need to say them because they're, you know, I mean, they're all out there. And then you combine those, those names with some other, other bad word and it just gets worse. And it's just prevalent. It's, it's without, it's so bad that it's now just initials OMG. That's all they have to say now. It means nothing. The word God, the word Jesus means nothing to the world today. And that's why it's so bad to use God so irreverently. It means nothing to them. They'll say God all day long. To them, if they treated God irreverently, they were struck down. Now, again, this is why it's different. 
Every time somebody says God irreverently, they don't get struck down because of the age we live in. But does that mean we can speak irreverently of God? Does that mean it's right for us to treat God that way? I don't think so. I think we need to take a step back and say, who is this God that we're treating? And in Israel, they didn't even say the name Yahweh, which was the name of God. They wouldn't even say it. And today, when you learn Hebrew, they teach you to say Adonai, which means Lord, instead of Yahweh. Or sometimes you hear Hoshem, which means the name, instead of it. I don't think that's right either, just, just between us. I think that's not using it enough. Like, right? You've you got to find a middle ground. We need to use God's name when it's deserved to be used. We need to call on God and say, this is from God, right? When the prophet said the name of God, it was powerful. It meant something. And we need to remember that. Not using it like as fluff or whatever, just every, like an explicative, like a swear word. And not, not using it either. Remembering that it is God that we need to use. And I, and I, would, I don't have enough time to go into everything like that, but it's, the word of God is the same way. The church is the same way. We need to remember what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with God and how great that is. And I want to go back. I want to end now with that last verse, verse 21. Because I think this, this kind of mysterious verse kind of shows a relationship with God that he wants. In verse 21, it says, um, sorry, I moved the page here. Uh, it says, then they sent messengers uh, to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your place. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. And there it stayed until David brought it back to Jerusalem. This man, Eleazar, apparently cared for the ark for some 40 plus years, day and night, treating it with respect. My challenge for us is that should be our life. Our relationship with God is the representative of the ark, treating it day in and day out with respect. I put as the verse in your bulletin, Romans 12, 1 and 2, just thinking of the line that we are to be living sacrifices. Every day, everything we do is to be a sacrifice to God. That doesn't mean just getting up here up front and preaching or teaching a Bible study or being a missionary, but everything that you do, whether it's work, whether it's family time, whether it's sports, whether it's fun time, whether it's a camp or wherever you are, everything, that's my favorite verse, Colossians 3.23, everything that we do, we do it unto the Lord. Because God is not our good luck charm or our genie, but God is our, our friend. He is our father. And most importantly, the thing that I want us to remember today is that he is our savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for being a God who has a relationship with us. And when I think about other religions where you are so far off, unreachable, unattainable, I thank you for being a God who cares for us so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. And so, Lord, as we think about that and we think about our relationship with you, my challenge for each and every one of us today is to deepen our relationship with you some way, somehow, this week and for the rest of our life. So to become not just a once a day, once a month, once a week thing, but it become a lifelong experience that we want to deepen with you forever. In your name, amen. I'd like you to, uh, like, invite you to stand again, please, as we sing, Come Thou Fount.
And I'd like to reintroduce the lazy lines at the end. <laughs> some of you may be familiar with that. So it worked so well last time we put it back in. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today, Pat. Thank you for opening God's Word. Hope we take it to heart. Continue to walk with Him and live for Him. And uh, be a witness for Him this week. As you go today, remember to visit the Vision House uh, table back there. Melissa and Heather will be in back with information. You can ask questions. You get information. Aquasox uh, sign-ups. And also the Secret Sisters sign-up as well. I encourage you to do that as well today. Continue to pray for Kate. And we continue to lift her up and strengthen her as she goes through her treatments. We know you've been praying for her, and we continue to do that. And let's remember to pray for the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it goes forth from this corner and throughout the world. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege again of coming today. We thank you for a place where we can gather. We leave these doors now, and we continue to be the church of Jesus Christ as we leave. And we take the church into our communities, into our workplace, into our schools, into our apartments, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. And Father, as we do so, as we've been reminded today, you are our God. We are your people 24 hours a day. And we pray that our hearts and our lives would bring honor and glory to you. That's what matters the most, Father. And may the love of Jesus Christ be evident in our lives as we share the wonderful news of salvation, the hope of forgiveness for sins and eternity, as we live our lives in your presence. Dismiss us now with your Holy Spirit as we walk our way today. In Christ's name, we pray together. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming and joining us. Meet again next Sunday at 10 o'clock.